Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer-Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Goodness, it is going to be a good day. It's episode 100 and 230. <laughs> 232. 232. We have got a lot of content. You know, I feel like I'm having deja vu that we might have talked about a lot of stuff we're talking about. I think it's literally just because we've done so many of it. Like, I think the kit that we're going to talk about this week, maybe we already reviewed it. <laughs> I can't remember. I know we reviewed something from them. Uh, we'll be reviewing an indie drum lab. Rezo armor drum set, but I don't remember this finish. Okay, and good. I don't remember the single flanged hoops. Okay, well, then so we must not have. Shoo, man, I, I, I don't think remember. we did this kit, but uh, <laughs> okay. I know we've never talked about Glenn Kochi before, so I'm really excited to get people okay. interested in him. <laughs> um, I've been following this cat on Instagram, Mark Juliana, Juliana, yeah, Anna. And, uh, hey, yeah. Big Al, where are we at with our Vinny Caliuda, Vinny Caliuda, Vinny Caliuda. I think it's been a good year of not talking about Vinny. Yeah. Well, you know what? He got his own podcast, so we were like, all right, pal. Yeah, you know what? You want to step refu- into our dojo? I refuse You're to out. listen to it is what also. <laughs> I'm so petty. I'm like, nah, I'm not giving him one download. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not helping his numbers. All right. Sh- should I stop listening to it? Because I listen to it. But, uh, oh, we should. I listened we to it when to, it first we came out. We need to let everybody know in. we're on iHeartRadio. That was one one news that we need to make sure everyone's aware of. We're on iHeartRadio. That is awesome. Which was simple to do, but we just hadn't done it, so now it's available there. So, And also, if you are listening to this podcast and you would rather be listening to it somewhere else, let us know. Uh, This is something that we've said many times, but Mike and I never set out to be podcasters. This was an accident that was... Just like, ah, let's give it a go. And 232 hours Plus, of podcasting yeah. later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's not leave out the 15 hours of episodes that I've ruined by not pressing the record button. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and have we ever, we've never released the true episode one, right? Because we had episode one and we didn't release it. And then our first episode uh, was really episode two. That's a good question. I'm going to look at the MP3s and see if we even have an episode one. Because, man, episode one was rough. Nope. All we have is the final version. So that came out in June okay. of 2015. Wow. <laughs> Look at us go. <laughs> my goodness. Holy Next crap, to my wife, you're my... S- five years. 
You're my second longest relationship. <laughs> this is crazy. A couple of five years gracious. this June. Hey, should we enter the episode? What are we talking about? Did we we are talking that? about Glenn Kochi. We're talking about, in our educational section, we're going to be talking about playing over the bar line, which I'm really excited about because I think uh, just to, I hate to compliment you. It makes me sick to my stomach, but you're a master of it. I think you're, you're talking about really good. <laughs> <laughs> you're a master of studying Glenn Kochi. Uh you're a master of playing over the bar line, so I'm excited to dive into that with you. Cool. I teach it constantly. I play it, but I still also have that very strict rock background that playing over the bar line causes me to realize that I'm playing over the bar line because mm-hmm. I know, like, oh, I just missed the stop sign. I was supposed to stop right there because uh, that's just baked into my DNA. So we'll talk about that. We'll get into Glenn Coche. We'll talk about that indie drum kit, and I'm excited about that because that. Anytime I see single flange tubes on on toms, I'm like, well, that it has to be good. You yeah. can't put those on a crappy kit. You get in trouble. <laughs> um, oh, as far as news, real quick update, guys. So uh, you guys know that I'll be playing at the UK Drum Show. I'm hosting uh, my own educational room there with Anna Canillis and Eddie Thrower. I will be performing on the main stage on the 27th. And if you are going to the UK drum show 2020 in Manchester, England, the going to the master classes that myself, Eddie and Annika are doing is completely free. As long as you have classes or tickets to the actual show, but you do have to go to their website. So it's just the UK drum You do have to grab those spots because I think the room is only going to hold for the master classes. The room's only going to hold about a hundred people. Hmm. So go there now. Uh, yesterday, Meinl announced or made it official. I've known for a while that I have been added to the 2020 Meinl drum festival in Gutenstedt in Germany. So that'll be awesome. Uh, I'm most excited. I've done obviously a lot of clinics with Annika, Joost Nickel, Benny Greb, but I'm most excited to get to work with Dan Mayo. Oh, yeah. He's a beast. With, I don't I know nothing I just, about him as a person whatsoever. Me, too. I mean, I met him quickly at NAMM two years ago. We talk a lot on Instagram, but I've never actually gotten to really hang with him, and I just find his drumming to be absolutely brilliant. So I'm excited about that. And then, last but not least, I mentioned this last week, but I have the clinic tour with Jason McGurr from Death Cab for Cutie, and uh, that's coming up at the end of March. So it'll be March 25th through the 30th. And we will be going from, uh, we start in Fresno, California at Bentley's, then go to Dublin, California for Dub's Drum Basement and up to the Rogue Valley Drum School in Medford, Oregon. Then to the greatest, one of the greatest drum shops, I hate to say the greatest, but one of the greatest drum shops in the world, Revival Drum Shop in Portland, Oregon. And then to Jason's alma mater, the Seattle Drum School. So, nice. Very cool. Oh. Hey, did I, I'm just going to squeeze in 10 drum camps in there somewhere and we'll make it work. <laughs> did I tell you that we finally locked in near Z to headline the Music City Drum Show in August? No. Yeah, so I'm going to be essentially opening up for near. So hopefully this is a start Dude. of a bunch of collaborations between me and my hero, which will be awesome. Man, hopefully <laughs> uh, I want to I hear the psyche vow when you get back from that. <laughs> I've had I, – dude, Pasek was opening for Weckl, and that messed me up good. I, I didn't sleep for like a week after that. So, uh, so man, that's awesome. Congrats. Yeah, that's super fun. So that is August 8th. We'll, we'll promote it a bit more as we get closer. But that's the Music City Drum Show. Super stoked. I'll be in the afternoon. I guess near is the, like the 5 o'clock or something like that. And I'm missing you by like one day. Because yes, I'll be in Nashville. Right. So 
I'll be in Nashville the third and the fourth. What day is that? It's the eighth, the Saturday after. So you're you're there before, yeah. So yeah, I'm doing the third and fourth with Minel doing new videos, new video content, and then on the f- I think the sixth. I'm going to be at, uh, this isn't confirmed yet, but I'll be at Nelson Drum Shop doing a clinic. Mm. And then the 7th, I drive to Huntsville, Alabama. And then on the 8th, that's when I'm It's almost like you clinic. don't like me because I'm flying in on the 7th. <laughs> <laughs> uh, trust me, man. I, I get all my info first. And I'm like, okay, how do I avoid this? Yeah, We're gonna when you're be... coming in, cool. I'll be driving out of town yeah. right when you get Oh, there. you're coming to California? Oh, like Northern California? Yeah, I'll be, in, I'll be somewhere else. I'll my be wife vacation. and I are planning a vacation yeah. now. <laughs> I thought you guys don't vacation. No, we do now. I get it. I don't want to. I get it. Okay, so let me ask you this about the vacation time. You were in Santa Cruz, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but now that you're a week and a half, two weeks removed from building your own snare drum. Yes. How did that experience affect you? Like, do you want to do more of that stuff? Do you have a higher respect for the people that do it? Mm, I I know that I could never do that. Okay. More than, I mean, it was, it was intense and also you know they didn't let us screw up if if they if he would have said hey come to the shop and just build a drum and there's all the tools and you know how to do it i mean no freaking way they jefferson and noah were it was very much like being in in school where like okay you can do this part but this part is really dangerous or this is the part where you can screw it up quickly so let me at least Guide and we you. can't get it back. Yeah, once you yeah once you sand the edges down too far, it's and it's now a thirteen by four. <laughs> yeah. And there's a couple of the like the 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 one that cuts the rough barren edges. He's like, yeah, this is called the Widowmaker. I'm like, all right, I'll I'll stay away from that thing. <laughs> yeah. I still have a career using my hands, so yeah. uh, so no, I have uh, so much appreciation for the craftsmanship, and I think especially in my position where gear is coming in and out of my studio every day, I kind of lose touch of just how precious this is for people to make these things. So I'm kind of, kind of slowing my, my role there with the, yeah, whatever. It's a pretty good drum. Like now give the guy some respect. Like every, every drum that comes through here, even if it's like, yeah, that's pretty good. Somebody made it. So I'm, I'm, it's humbled me in a lot of ways. Yeah. At the same time, it's also made me like, I can see things that I couldn't see before in the quality that now I'm like, ah, man, I don't like this drum anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I'm always shocked by the memory that these guys have. When I talk to Paul Cooper over at Gretsch about anything, he'll say something like, oh yeah, you're, you're a USA custom in antique maple. Like when that came through the bench and I'm like, dude, that was four years ago. What do you mean when that came through the You've made, you make like 18 kits a day and, and they just have this locked in memory of like it yeah, kind of like when round. you hear a golfer talk about his round, like a pro pro mm-hmm. golfer, his or her round. And they go down 12. I had that lag putt for four yeah. feet to make par. And you're like, how do you remember that? Yeah. Or LeBron James. He can just tell you every play of every game. He's unreal. Ever played. It's like, come on, dude. This isn't this isn't fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's uh hey, I have a quick question. I don't want to go down a sad rabbit hole, but obviously we know we lost. Kobe and uh, seven others uh, a little while ago, but did you get to watch any of the Kobe celebration held at the Staples Center? No, I, I can't. I can't yeah. do that stuff. I mean, I saw a little bit of his his wife's opening eulogy, and like, I, I can't, can't do it. I can't. I can't. It's do it. it's it was tough. I watched quite a bit of it, but I got to say, Shaq, 
I've never had more respect for Shaq. I've never, I've actually never liked it. Well, I live in Sacramento. Shaq and Kobe ruined our entire city. <laughs> right. I think Tim Donaghy had a little bit more to do with it because he was on the take, but whatever. We'll talk about that on another day. Anyways, uh, but Shaq being able to go up there where Jordan's crying. I mean, everyone's just wrecked and he was able to bring some levity and some jokes into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, if you, if you get to check out Shaq's talk uh, or like his moment up there, it was pretty awesome. Cause he, he was talking about how he had to go to Kobe. All the guys were complaining that Kobe wasn't passing the ball and uh, they mm-hmm. went to Shaq and Shaq said, it's all good, man. I'll talk to him. I'll shut him. I'll shut the kid down. <laughs> and uh, he said, Kobe, there's no I in team. And Kobe's Kobe's answers was like, yeah, but there's an ME in it, and that was it. And and Shaq, Shaq went back to Big Shot Bob and Rick Fox and, and told them all, yeah, just uh, get the rebound because he's not passing it to you. Yeah. yeah. And there's, I mean, Kobe and Jordan are the two people that I look at and look up to so much with that killer mentality of just, I, I cannot wake up and not try to be better than I was yesterday. And mm-hmm. I've gotten more influence in trying to build my business and build my teaching practice from those two guys than I have really anybody else in the world. So a uh, huge loss, but if you know what an impact that dude had. So did you think we were taking that turn? Dawson? No, I thought we talked about that last week. See, the deja vu just keeps happening over and over again. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> oh, man. Hey, I, I haven't got a chance to tell you, but I'm super into green tea. <laughs> All right, let's get into our education. <laughs> so oh, our educational man. topic is playing over the bar line. I want to talk about what that means because I know that if I was, say, three to four years deep into this instrument and somebody said, hey – can you play over the bar line? I, I really wouldn't know what that means at all. And then a couple ways to practice it because that's important. Just mm-hmm. because you know what something is doesn't help unless you can practice it. So when I say playing over the bar line to you, does that instantly mean something or is that something that could mean 20 different things depending on the situation? I think it generally just means you're playing phrases, beats, soloing in ways that aren't restricted by the time signature. That's kind okay. of the general feeling for me. Like there's no, if it's 4-4, four, four, you don't always start on the one and end on the one. That's that's basically it. Whether it's a beat, yeah. a fill, a sticking, whatever. I think of it. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think it's it's learning how to not mark the one and yeah. not obviously stab it. And especially, I think when you're starting out, being able to play your fill and not crash on the one. If you can go past the one, that's the first time you're going to experience what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, in, in jazz band, we would have like this one bar uh, that just had like a little line through it. And instead of writing something out, it would say drum fill, mm-hmm. but then there'd be a giant crash on two. And it's like, well, I have to stop on one. So do I hit one and two? And it's like, no, 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 just fill all the way till two. Right. I'm like, yeah. Oh dear God. <laughs> That's so long. It's a whole quarter no longer. So I think when people start, like if you were thinking in a a pop rock phrasing, let's say I gave you a this two bar phrase, and on the second bar you were going to play Pat Boone, Debbie Boone on on beats three and four. So one, two, three, four, one, two, Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, boom, Scott. If you wanted to play over the bar line, you could just add one more Debbie Boone and then crash on two. One, two, three, four, one, two, da doon, daka doon, daka doon, psh, 
Mm-hmm. And doing that for most people, now their three becomes their one and they're all turned around mm-hmm. and their brain kind of goes fuzzy. So did you do you remember a time that you started practicing playing over the bar line? Did you have exercises for it? Yeah, but it was mostly in a jazz context because that's okay. I think that's just a hallmark of of modern jazz is you're always sure. trying to obscure the obvious, whether it's chord changes, whether it's the phrasing. Um, I think that's the art of modern jazz is taking simple four four pop songs and then stretching them to the point where if you don't know what you're listening to, it sounds like everyone's just making crap up. <laughs> but but if you really yeah. know what you're listening to, you that's. To me, that's where you get the pleasure in listening to jazz. You're like, oh, they're playing I Got Rhythm, which is one of the most basic kind of corny pop songs of all time. But you, if you don't know that they're playing I Got Rhythm and they're doing all these harmonic inversions and the drummer's always going over the one, you're like, I don't know what they're doing. But if you know that they're playing I Got Rhythm, it's like you're in on the joke in a way. You're like, oh, yeah. I hear where they're deviating and they're stretching the form and the drummer yeah. going over the one every eight bars. Or, so, are, yeah, I mean, constantly... I remember taking early jazz lessons when I was just into jazz band and having my teachers say, okay, we're just going to play one bar phrases, but you're always, I want you to always accent the, uh, of four. Yeah. That's the first. And thing. the next yep. thing you play is two. Yeah. So ding, 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 you know, and it was like, oh my gosh. And now I'm going over the bar line. Yep. I think another way that people can do it on a practice level is to get into groupings that are not groups of two or four. Yeah. Three and is so if you're, the obvious way to do it. Yeah. Exactly. And and if you can start by just counting, just counting 16th notes, you don't have to just do this like one, two, three, one, two, three. Cause if you do that, you're going to turn it into a new pulse of one, two, three, four, but it could be eighth notes. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and once you get used to that type of thing, put a backbeat under that. Boom. You're going mm-hmm. over the bar line, playing that as fills. 16th notes, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three. Getting used to that phrasing, like you said, improvisational stuff going over the bar line. Super helpful. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it helps too to have a metronome on so you know where you are in the time. Yeah. Counting out loud is crucial. I always try to think in four bar phrases. So if I'm practicing, yeah, a good, good one for me was to open up syncopation and take a four bar phrase. And I'm going to, I'm going to play a groove or a fill and, and, and try to sort of emphasize that pattern, but not like deliberately, like playing it super obvious. So yeah, a lot of times they might, the phrase might end on the end of four or it might logically lead to beat two. So I have to, extend my fill to where I land on beat right. two. So that way I'm thinking less like pattern based. It's more like here's the overall four bar structure and I've got to hit these various rhythms within it. So that's like how sure. I, when I'm kind of just more improvising, that's how I think of it. I think of a longer four bar phrase. Therefore I'm not hitting the one every measure. I'm thinking about hitting the one after four bars. So then I might be yeah. obscuring each one in between and then that might go to eight bars and all of this is really coming from hanging out with horn players in college and picking their brain. Like, how mm. are you thinking? Because if you if you look at a transcription of, of a Freddie Hubbard solo or something, or even Charlie Parker, they're not obviously accentuating the ones. They're just right. literally playing until they run out of air most of the time. So let's just yeah. go, 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 take a breath. Where was that? That was on the end of three. Cool. Pick up where you left right. off. Yeah. So that, I also think about that. Like, just play your idea until your idea ends, 
and then wherever it ends is where it ends. But make sure your internal pulse is always counting that four. That's the trick, right? Is like you know, if I if I'm playing four four time and I go into sixteenth notes in groups of six, like if I'm just playing a paradiddle three four, and I'm not counting. Now we're just here. Yeah, yeah, you're done. You know, unless yeah. you're done, right? So that's where it starts. I mean, even being able to snap or clap rhythms that go over the bar line, those groupings of three, you know, going uh, one, two, three, and a four, and one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. If you can't keep track mm-hmm. of that, you're going to be in trouble with fives and all that stuff. And that's why I think P. Magadini was definitely the one that showed to me why practicing advanced stuff was important when I told him I will, I am not playing this. I am in like the lamest metalcore <laughs> grungy kid band ever. At no point am I going to play this. And he's like, if you could do this, you would play that stuff much better because mm-hmm. you would have a sense of pulse. No matter what's happening around you, no matter. And maybe you do decide to, maybe you are still playing just like a, a straight up rock beat. But maybe on the China, you're playing every third note. I think we sh- even showed a Vinny tune where he was playing the China every fifth note. Yeah, right. There was still a backbeat. Yeah. And so, and that stuff did creep into my drumming. And now it is my drumming. So I think that that's a really good way to go. Another way that would help a lot of you out there, especially when it comes to just basic pop, rock, funk drumming, is just take the four separate 16th notes starting on the E of one. So the E of one, the and of one, the uh of one and the downbeat of two and make those your crash marks. So you just play a a bar of groove, a bar of fill, but on the first one, you're going to have to go one sixteenth note longer to get to Mm -hmm. the E of one, one, two, three, four, shot and tune, flacoon down, but to get back to good up, scat, cat, black and tune, deck it to good black it to game, but to get up, scat. And then you go to the and then you go to the, uh, and then you go all the way to the downbeat of two. That really gets you comfortable with not having to mark the one on something like a pop slash rock fill. Yeah, I think that is one of the one of the major parts of Dave Desenzo's book. Um, yeah, what is it called? What's it uh, the hardest book ever, <laughs> and it should come with him showing up at your house and explaining it. Uh, yeah, he's. I think his demystifying think big, something. Yeah, demystifying, right? Man, it's so disrespectful. I don't even know the name of his book, but if you don't have a copy of that book, check it out because I think that. For me, that was the one thing I, that was like an aha moment. He's he's taking patterns, sixes and threes, these things that we all learn. Now put them in this construct of here's where you have to land. So how do you how do you get this pattern to resolve properly on the end of two or something like that? Right. Like how many yeah. extra right left lefts do you need to add to make it fit? Um, yeah, I think yeah, a lot I of it's that- a, I think it's back and forth of like being very strategic and kind of pen and paper with it, and then at the same time always focusing on the larger like can you feel the overarching phrase of it which right. it's like constantly strengthening your four bar sense of four bar phrasing and then pushing yourself to where you fall apart and then say well why did i fall apart i was trying to play a five i don't know how fives actually fit in four bars of four four when they start on the e so then you might write it out and then you've got so to exercise the practice that's the thing is you have to be careful to know is your pulse holding you get together or your internal pulse or did you memorize the sound yeah, because uh, say groupings of three, we kind of know like, well, I can do five of them. That gives me 15. One more note and I'm there and mm-hmm. I'm out. The bar's over. But when you do two bar phrasing, it's easy to get lost. 
you know yeah as soon as you get to more than one bar unless you have that pulse and that's why you and i harp on this way too much but it's why counting out loud is so important yeah Yeah. i am definitely not above going one two three four uh 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 you gotta be kidding me well we're here now (laughs) yeah Uh, your one's uh, gone uh, yeah uh, (laughs) yeah so it helps a lot to go uh two three four one two three four one two three four and a one two and i'm out yeah right yeah and in that way for me you're not learning formulas i don't want to learn formulas because then i feel like you're playing drums and then you play your riddle and then you're done it's like (laughs) I want to be able to go in and out of these phrasing, which is probably what you were referencing earlier, where I don't want to even know where I'm starting a five. It just kind of starts to happen, and I just go with it. Totally. But I have this strong internal, hopefully strong internal clock that just keeps me me in check. (laughs) You know, like I can play anything at this point because my brain knows where the four is. And my hands might take me somewhere that stretches my, my brain, but not to the point where it, like, totally destroys it but even still sometimes i flip the beat around it still happens yeah i think it comes back to a lot of your jazz training i'm assuming you did this but when i first started as a and i'm talking junior high so please jazzers out there anytime i reference jazz know that it stopped at high school when i went to high school with johnny rab and was like well (laughs) screw this uh (laughs) does the soccer team have any openings i'm not playing behind this cat so when i started working on jazz improvisation on like a solo level and people or my teachers started making me sing. I got rhythm, sing rhythm changes out loud while you're soloing, sing satin doll while you're soloing, Mm -hmm. being able to do that. I think that when I'm soloing now, there's, I, I think I'm still singing. So even as I'm floating over the bar line, I know where the backbeat is. Mm -hmm. I know where the groove is. There's a pulse there. Because even when I listen to some of my Instagram videos, I'm like, oh, I can't post that. I just played a measure of 15. And then I listen back. I'm like, no, I was in four the whole time. It just just kind of kept floating over the bar line that my ear got tripped up as the listener. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so I think this 15 minute conversation could be boiled down to count out loud and never not count out loud. <laughs> Until you don't. And thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast. <laughs> we are out forever. Count out loud. If you can count out loud, you can play any nonsense you want because you're always going to land on the one. I agree. I, I agree completely. <laughs> and if you can count out loud, you can play any time signature you want. Yeah. Like I don't play drums in seven. I play drums. I count to seven. Right. You know what I mean? Like, how do you play a songo in seven? Uh, I play a songo and then I run out of time and I start over. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> All right. All right. Snarky time is over. All we want you to do is practice and you can be driving in your car right now and start tapping on the steering wheel and groupings of three while counting quarter notes in four, four, and you will become a better musician. Now it is time to get into our featured artist. Uh, This is somebody that you are a huge fan of. And I have just because you're a fan of him, I'm like, well, I'm not listening to that stuff. And at, the more and more I listen to him, the more I realize that he sits in that world with our favorites like Keltner, yep. and Matt Chamberlain. And he's just he's one of those brilliant texture drummers that cares about music more than anything. And uh, I, I listened to a bunch of the new album today or the newest album. And then I watched some of that solo stuff you sent me and Glenn Kochi is an absolute master. Yeah, so Glenn is on, if you're a subscriber, you might have already gotten your copy, but 
the digital edition is just out today, so that means it'll be on sale on sale in stores next week. It is the April issue. Glenn's back on the cover. I believe this is his third cover, but first one in a long time. They probably had three records between then and now. Um, so we decided to go back to the guy. Um, I didn't want to do the interview this time because I did the first two. I went like Adam. Why don't you should probably do this one? You can find some other other avenues to discuss, but. Yeah. It's a very similar. I mean, I'm I'm awestruck with how obsessed he is with details about things that most drummers would never even think to consider. Like this record, if you listen to the new record, Ode to Joy, yeah. it's a pretty sparse record where you think, cool, I'm just going to have some mallets and just play some right. backbeats and stuff. But then he explains yeah. all the detail of like that. It's actually overdubbed layers of this marching machine and toms and I'm playing. So the whole record is like probably the simplest drumming he's ever done but also the most complicated if that makes any sense i, I gotta say like well it does because um i hadn't heard the record before today and the first track I'll, i think it was the first track but i think the first track was the entire track was quarter notes yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i was just doing stuff around the studio and feeling it yeah and i was like who's this drummer <laughs> this guy's killing the quarter notes <laughs> Um, but it, but like you said, they weren't just quarter notes. It wasn't kick and then acrostic. It was this super textured thing where even though I was trying to figure out what's happening on one and what's happening on two, yeah. because there's 19 layers on one and 19 layers yeah. on two. There's low sounds um, and high sounds, but none of it sounds like a drum set. It was really cool. But somehow um, so. he's touring and reproducing this stuff. So we have a like a half hour video that he recorded for us where he's on stage before a gig and he shows us how he's reinterpreting every song from the new record um, so I think we should start with that because okay. I think if you only listen to the new record you think alright this isn't super exciting drumming but if you really dig in you'd be like holy crap how's he doing this and then you go to moderndrummer.com watch this video and he shows you he's playing four mallet technique he's got all kinds of crazy stuff right. so we're going to do um, the song Citizens is in the video it's around the 10 minute mark but he goes through the whole record in this video but this is him demonstrating the crazy layered percussion drum part on the song citizens we'll start there so this song's called citizens for the main groove for it i'm using these uh mallets that promark made for me drum set mallets um that sound great on the toms and i'm using steven's grip because i have to play a pattern where they put together and then separately and this is a stick I rigged up with a uh, with a timbali stick, a Promark timbali stick, and I put uh, this this rubber coating over it from a stroller. Actually, it sounds great on the snare. The primary reason is because I'm also playing the vibra slap, the minor vibra slap, so it doesn't uh, get that clicky sound. And then some some various shaman bells and little bells over here. And I'm using the foot kibasa here to imitate some brushes that I did on the record brush part. So this is the the main beat for citizens. Okay, first of all, I've played in a lot of youth orchestras. I've never heard consistent vibra slap. Is that what those things are called? Yeah, the the, the uh, grrr, yeah. yeah. I've never heard a whole note played on a vibra slap. How the hell is he doing that? It's Whoa. supposed to go grrr, and then you hit it again, but he gets he's got grrr. that was amazing. 
Yeah, so it, it, you have to kind of see the video to really get the whole picture because he's got a kibasa with his left foot that's playing this this counter rhythm that's not on the one, and he's playing two mallets in the right hand that's doing the toms. He's got that weird homemade rubber mallet thing in his left hand that he's playing the vibra slap, and the, I mean, it's crazy. And then he, later on, uh, we'll drop this part in too, he, he demonstrates some of the fills, so it just gets even more like insane. You know, it's it's such a such a musical approach to independence, right? Like, yeah, totally. Usually, independence is how difficult of things can you do at the same time so that you can tell your friends what you did, yeah. and they can't do it. But this is like, like you said, it's like, well, the the record has fifteen layers, but we are going out with just me, so <laughs> yeah. I'll do it. Uh, that was super impressive. Yeah, for me, it's like it's the opposite of of showing off. It's it's like you totally. people don't even understand how complicated that part is. He just played. You're right. It's the complete opposite because you don't get to stand up and be like, just so you guys know, I am working my ass off back here <laughs> to make it seem like I'm doing nothing. Y'all right, let's better appreciate. The, uh, let's drop in the part with the drum fills. So here are some of the end fills uh, that I overdubbed in Citizens and try and replicate live just by uh, throwing in the left hand with the right hand ostinato. He might be the very first drummer ever to not have his neighbors hate him. Like his neighbors are like, "Hey, can you open your windows? Can you give us some more of that?" So cool, right? I mean, it's like that's amazing. Where else would you hear that? I can't believe he's doing that all by himself. And Mike's right; you almost have to see it to appreciate it even more to see, like, wow. Because obviously, as drummers, our first instinct when we see anything is, "Could I do that? If I could, how would I do that?" And you see this, and the answer is no. Yeah. I mean, you kind of think, yeah, I could do that, but then you really see what he's doing. Like, no yeah. way. No, it's just that's the amazing. left part alone. It's like on the E's or something. I don't know what he's doing. It's crazy. Anyway, so that's I'll- like new stuff. And I wanted to also reference back to the first thing that I saw him do that wasn't as a drummer in a rock band that gave me chills. So it's the solo piece called Monkey Chant. He performed this at PASIC years ago. And it was, I was, my jaw was on the floor. I've never heard drum a drum set player do anything like this before. It's a it's a 15-minute piece where he basically tells this, this old story, this old opera via the drum set. It's fascinating. So we're just going to throw in a chunk of it where it's a little bit more exciting. But the whole thing is on YouTube. Glenn Cochi Monkey Chant movie by Brendan Canty. Brendan Canty is the drummer of Fugazi. So he's he made this... Documentary oh wow! Okay, yeah. So we'll just drop in the part where he's kind of doing more crazy drum stuff, but the whole thing is absolutely brilliant. So let's check some of that out.
I don't think our listeners can see me shaking my head in just disbelief, but I remember this coming out on the Modern Drummer Festival. Yeah. Yeah, we booked okay. him after I saw him play at a solo concert. It's like, we have to put this on the stage. Okay, so I saw that. Uh, what, what year was that, do you think? Uh, probably, f- I don't know, four, five, 2005. 2004? It's, yeah. It's been a while. So at that, so 15 years ago, think about what was happening in our DVD world. I mean, it, everyone that was getting the love would have been, it was either Horacio pushing that thing as far as you can go, Daphne Prieto was a part of that. And then we also had <clears throat> Aaron Spears was showing yeah, up and all that of, world of that, the gospel R and B vibe. Yep. Yep. And this was the complete opposite <laughs> and not, not received well by me. I was like, you just took up 15 minutes of my life with this. And that's such a perfect example of somebody showing me something at a time where I'm not ready for it. Yeah. And then coming back to it a decade or 15 years later. Because like right now, I'm listening to the same thing that I heard 15 years ago. And I'm like, dude, this is brilliant. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. I just wasn't ready to handle it. And I think that for Glenn to go on the Modern Drummer Festival at that time, when everyone just wanted chops, or show me how hard what you're doing actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like, he followed I, Thomas I, Lang, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. And... You know, and that was kind of the height of all that kind of stuff too, yeah. for like Thomas and Marco and and that and Uber world, uh, and yeah. So I just have all the respect for in the world for him, and I hope people will watch this video so they can see those springs on his snare drum because that still makes no sense. Yeah, so that is one of those Evans SD dry that has the holes in it, the pinholes. So he just spun springs up through the holes, so they they just attach to the head, and then it becomes like a lion's roar, and it, it's super brilliant. So anyway, this piece made me. That was one of the only times I legitimately gave someone a stand ovation. Like, what did I just witness? Really? Can you please do it all over again right now? That's so cool, man. <laughs> so cool. Um, well, definitely, everyone, check out the new album. What's it called again? Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy. Because uh, I listened to it for the first time today. It's definitely um, my bad for set. Well. I didn't say there wasn't good new music, so there wasn't great hits. <laughs> oh, update on that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, first of all, let me say, you guys are super kind to like send me music and be like, hey, check this out. What do you think about this? But you can't send me Snarky Puppy and tell, and tell me, like, no, no, there's, there's new hits. It's like, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways, I know that Snarky Puppy is amazing. Um, but somebody started off really good in their email it was really good like hey man i fully understand where you're coming from and yes sometimes modern pop hits can be a little bit bland but and then i thought he was going to be like but check this out but he's like but you know what's great for that is you can just rip over the top of it so that's what i do and i was like (laughs) (laughs) okay thanks so it's a metronome that proves my point even more uh, so I do appreciate the emails. You guys are amazing. Yeah, Love good luck ripping over monkey chant. Try that. Yeah, oh, no, I'm good. Uh, that's amazing. But I, what I was going to say is the new album, Ode to Joy, is just because I used it for this today. I just had work to do at the studio, like actual house cleaning work, and I was just putting stuff away and moving stuff around. And it was on, and it was it reminded me of albums that I love, where you leave the album on instead of just cycling through your favorite songs on your playlist. It was really good. 
Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite bands, so their discography is super deep. I, for me, the one that, that hooked me was the live album Kicking Television. So if okay. if you've tried Wilco before and it's not really your vibe, that was the one when I heard them as a live band doing all this stuff that sounded like studio wizardry. I was completely hooked at that point. So that, that was my starting point. Awesome. All right, now it's time to get into some candy Yes. Let's talk about drums. We're talking about a trifecta of classic do-all tones, sleek and innovative hardware, and a gorgeous, nearly bulletproof finish. Did you write that headline? By Michael Dawson, you did! Woo! Oh, man. So this is the Indie Rezo Armor Kit uh, by Josh Allen is the designer-builder. Um, if you remember Josh, he used to work for another company before he went independent. Um, so this kit... Um, they, all, they, they make their own shells, and it's their own design, and they only have one type of shell. So it's not like you can get them to build you a birch kit or whatever. It's, they're all maple. They're all um, 4.3 millimeters thick. And he's got the, the grain orientation of the plies in a very specific way that he has decided and tested that allows for the maximum stability of the shell, but also the most resonance. So if you want to read more about that, it's in the review, or you can go to their website. But um, I trust them because the drum sounded really open and really pure, and they were really light, super lightweight, which he also uses very low-profile pro- hardware that he designed, so that's another plus. What, um, what size is this kit? This kit? So 14 by 22 9 by 13 16 by 16 yep. so big kid drums. Big kind of classic rock setup, but the bass drum was super light. You could kind of fling it up in the air um, so it's you know it's not it's a professional kit you're talking like 2700 for that three-piece kit um, the finish is something that he designed so it's not a wrap it's not a paint it's some kind of a some kind of material that actually bonds with the shell so unlike a wrap which will actually deaden the resonance of the shell this thing is stronger than a wrap and doesn't deaden the resonance whatsoever and he's even has clips on his site where he's smashing the shell with sticks, and there's no no marks really? whatsoever. The the lugs look pretty original too; like they're not actually flush with the shell, right? There's a little arch. Yeah, yep. He's built in everything he can to keep keep the shells as resonant as possible. He's kind of busted some myths about needing, you know, a lot of companies they incorporate plastic gaskets between metal. Okay. And wood, he's under the philosophy that that actually kills the resonance. So he has none of that stuff. He designed his own way to not have to have any rubber gaskets and things in his hardware. Oh, pretty brilliant. You want to check it out? I don't mind. So I tested this thing from having the heads barely under any tension and then went all the way up to super tight. Kind of opposite what I normally do. Let's give it a listen.
maybe uh maybe I gotta look into those thirteens. That thirteen sounded good. Oh, you don't have any thirteens, do you? I don't know. I mean, twelve for me is like because I grew up on tens, so mm. twelve is like damn, got a yeah. tub. Thirteen's kind of my default for most things. Really, these days, yeah, that sounds. Like, you can tune it high really enough good. to have it kind of be nice and ringy, but like at twelve, sometimes I feel like it. It doesn't. It just kind of craps out, but I really start smacking it for certain things. Yeah. No, I agree. That thing sounded fantastic. Bass drum sounds good, so it's a fourteen-inch deep kick. Um, yeah, no, so I'm not on any of those drums at all. Uh, so what I did there was like barely any tension, and the whole video was on the website. But I just went like a quarter turn on the top heads only and played, and then quarter turns on the bottom head to bring it up. So I just kind of very gradually went from super low to super high. I found a sweet spot in the in the medium and, and up for this kit. Okay. Although the low was cool, but I felt like the drums just started to really speak in the the medium and up, kind of more of a classic rock kind of tone. I thought. Nice, nice. So the so snare drum. Should we talk about the snare drum? <laughs> I'm not scared. I thought the snare sounded dope as hell, and then I looked at it and I was like, "Oh, biscuits!" Uh, that was oh, the biscuits. Gretsch Brooklyn standard. So I don't. I hadn't listened back to the episode, but I don't think I gave your drum a negative review. But let's just put it out there. I did. I I really liked the drum. So I don't know what would have been seen I, as I a think, negative. I think because I got some emails about it and I, I was on the fence about should we even review it at all because it, it is it is a little awkward to have a review about a product that either one of us are close. It'd be like me doing like, hey, let me review Modern Drummer real quick. But yeah. It'd be yeah. a little awkward. Um, well, I mean, you didn't build a damn drum. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I didn't even... I didn't even. I, mean, I, I wrote the to words in the magazine. You didn't build the yeah. drum. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Good point. It'd be uh, yeah, agreed. It'd be if you if you did an audit on mikeslessons dot com versus other websites, then we'd I'd get a little frosty. But uh, but no, I think that that because it is considered my signature drum, we could be a little bit more honest about it because. We know more about it. Like we really and know what we were trying it. to achieve. Yeah, we've already. Yeah, talked and we about know what we're trying to achieve. And there, there's a, a price point attached to it where it's like, look, man, this is a workman's drum. I, I really hope. Um, it's funny. I mean, most people would probably think this is a negative, but I would love thirty years from now that the Brooklyn Standard is in the world with Acrylites. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. dude, back in the day, you could get this thing for like under five hundred bucks. You can get it used for three seventy five. Yeah, and it just does its job. It's like. Dude, that's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, and, and also stoked on it. I mean, the way that I review snare drums is I try to make them, I push them past their limits. That's the goal. To like, how far can I push right. it? What you just heard there, sorry, Indy and Josh for derailing your review, but <laughs> where I had the drum there was where I thought this drum is singing. That's where it needs to be. But I can't review a drum just saying this is where it sounds great. Everything yeah, else and is, I, I, you know, getting it back to the indie kit, one thing that I was thinking of is that in our reviews, at least on the podcast, I think it's going to be important in the future that we tell people where is this thing really excelling? It doesn't mean that excelling at something doesn't mean that you're bad at everything else, but it is very important to know, like if one kit was the most well-rounded kit ever and could do everything, we'd all have that kit. All these things based off of the wood and the shell and the grain and all that stuff they do different things better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, you tell me 22, 13, 16, and I instantly think, well, it, it's killing in low tunings. Mm. Then we listen back and you say, yeah, it really excelled at medium and, yeah. and tuning it up a little bit. Yeah. So 
I think it's important to know that the reason why all these people keep making stuff and the reason why somebody like Nicky Moon is out there making symbols on his own is because there isn't the best. There isn't the one do it all. Yeah. You know, we all have our own ears. Uh, well, this kit sounded fantastic. Uh, 14 by 22. That's one of my favorite bass drum sizes in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, you can go almost full bottom with it and totally. you can throw a pillow in it and it's, it's punchy as hell. Yeah, this is it, my go-to all-around studio configuration. 13, 16, 22, because like I said, I can tune it up. If I, I don't do any sessions where like, you make it sound like bebop. I mean, that has never happened right. in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> never once. Well, I, I would say, you know, at under $2,700, awesome kit. I want to learn more about the finish because that really got me excited. Yeah, go to, their, uh, go to the go to Indie Drums website and you'll, you'll see a, a good explanation of the finish. All I can tell you is these drums sang like crazy but the finish you cannot hurt it so unlike a lacquer drum which i'm so afraid to take on gigs where i know it's going to get scratched up this is this you cannot do anything you might even like a blowtorch on it at one point i mean it's it's kind of crazy wow. so the yeah, fact that that part of the website is called tech design and nerdery <laughs> yeah, like his website says nerdery that's pretty <laughs> awesome so yeah check out indiedrum.com it's i-n-d-e drum.com now before we get to our questions i gotta talk to you about something oh pretty excited what so you know i have a lot of vintage snares and even though i have technically a vintage kit my kit is not that different than a modern kit. It's just an old modern kit. Right. But it's a six-ply shell. It's got the same exact hoops, same lugs that I'm playing on my modern kits. Uh, it's a USA Custom. I got my first vintage bass drum. What? I got a 1940s three-ply Gretsch round badge with the single lugs. Um, or what? I don't even know what you call that, the vintage-style like lug in the middle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, know what you call that. I mean, Great. I guess the club <laughs> two, two pro drummers. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> well, club uh, gate, but I don't know what Gretz called it. <laughs> so yeah, so I saw Bryson Nelson just advertising it, and it was a finish that I'd never seen before. It's like a Duco, but way thinner. So it's like this dark cobalt blue with a silver strip in the middle, but it is the original finish. Um, but it's what? not faded out like Duco, and it's not straight like a, a racing stripe. When is it's, do you have it now? No, no, it should be here like either today or tomorrow. I'll send you a picture as soon as we're done. But I'm, I'm oh, wait super excited. Is it the exact same size as, as your current drum? No. <laughs> okay. No, it's a 12 by 22. Oh, sweet. There's no spurs. This like this was on somebody's <laughs> chest walking around going, don, don, don. Oh, yeah, those Ducos were like marching drums. Yeah. So this that was is probably someone's a, high school colors. This is not a kick drum. This is a bass drum. <laughs> nice. Um, I remember uh, at PASIC like 10 years ago, who was it? Uh, Todd Zuckerman or Steve, maybe it was Steve Smith. It was somebody or Russ Miller. It was one of our elder statesmen that got up at PASIC and he mentioned they were, it was, he was Q and a time. They asked him something about his pedal. And then he, he said, he said, well, I'm using a 16 by 22 bass drum and it's a bass drum, not a kick drum. And the whole crowd like started applauding. Like it was like this, <laughs> like, like we're educated and we would never call it a kick drum because this is basic. Uh, and I just literally just wanted to throw up, uh, not by the sentence that was said, but it was like, whatever <laughs> it's a, <laughs> so any of you out there, call it whatever you want. You want to call it kick drum, call it a kick drum. 
Do you do you have a steadfast Dawson rule that you call it a bass drum? I used to be bass drum only, but then okay. you know when I have to write the word bass drum eight thousand times a month, you need some synonyms for that. So right. I kick drum or even just kick. I think bass drum or kick is a little bit more what I, where I would want to go because I feel like. The reason you say kick is so a front of house guy doesn't have to be like, give me the bass I was bass just going to say, it, if you say bass drum only, I know you've never gigged. Because front of house can't say bass, because if he did, your bass player would start yeah, playing. Yeah, exactly. So, give me so some it's kick. kick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Tangent done. Let's get uh, into the questions. All right. First one here is from Jeff in Atlanta. I'm considering purchase, purchasing a second drum kit and can't decide between a 1960s Cleveland era Rogers or a new George Way studio um, in 12, 14, 20 inch sizes. I'm looking for that 60s warm and punchy sound. Uh, yeah, so that's the question. Should he get a new vintage style kit or an actual vintage kit? And he's looking for the 60s sound. You know my thoughts on that. It's not that it was made different in the sixties. It's that it is 60 years old. Yeah. And so I have a brand new broadcaster that does not sound like a 1950s Gretsch kit. Mm -hmm. So the George way kit would be absolutely amazing, but it is not pre-aged. It is not 60 years old. There's something I'm telling you. And I didn't believe it until I got my blue kit, but there is some mojo on there when a kit, when wood has aged by 60 years that you just can't recreate with a brand new kit. Nope, and I should have added he does have a modern Ludwig kit, so he's looking yeah. for something that wouldn't be too modern. I same, I have same opinion. Get the vintage kit. Yep, and I love the George Way stuff, but that's it. Just has a little bit of that modern snap to the attack. That's going to be a little bit similar to your Ludwig kit, in my opinion. There you go. And Rogers is badass. So <laughs> okay. Um, is this is from Eric? Is it a good idea to use heavy sticks to work out on the practice pad? Whoa, this is the one. Uh, yeah, this is where we're going to arm wrestle. Uh, I say no. Okay, I say yes. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> You're lying. You said that just because I said no. Look at the sticks I have here. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> I use marching uh, sticks. I use drum corps sticks on the practice pad. Tell me, tell me, and I'm now I'm not being sassy. Tell me why. Um, I think it, a couple things. It, it's, I feel like I'm getting stronger playing bigger, heavier sticks. Okay. I also think it teaches me to be versatile with my hands, to not be locked into having to use a 5A hickory for everything. Okay. I feel like I just sure. pick up any stick and, and figure out how to use it. Um, and it's just from history. I mean, I came up playing drum core drumming, so... Yeah. Working on chops was always big, heavy sticks. And if I hadn't done that, like when I first joined the college drum line and, and, and they were using big boy marching sticks, it beat me up for like two or three months. So I for feel sure. like I'm, I'm, giving, I'm strengthening myself to the point where when I go back to my normal light sticks, I don't know. It's probably it's the old myth of, of swinging with a donut on your, on your baseball bat in the batter's box for me. I think it, it, it's almost the same to me as when we talk about the reflex pad or anything else like that. Like if it makes you practice, I'm all for it. Yeah. So whatever it takes to make you practice, I think that it's, it's super important. I also think that there are times that using heavier sticks can be something where, wow, I've got this student that just can't get through like the second verse of, um, pretender by Foo Fighters or something, you know, it's like, okay, well I need to build up your endurance. We're going to go to heavier sticks. Mm. I might do something like that for my students. 
But if it was something where I was trying to make sure I'm comfortable with all six, I'd probably be switching between marching sticks and seven A's lighter than I'll ever need, heavier than I'll ever need. Make sure my hands are just completely pliable. So there you go. I don't think it's necessary, but if you practice, you're going to get better. Now, I I think we said that in our very first episode. Yeah. And I think we'll both agree. Do not use metal sticks. hundred percent. Be very careful with those things. Yep. Um, Okay. This one's from big Al. This is just to rip to, to poke you a little bit harder. Bring it. Uh, I haven't touched a practice pad in 20 years and don't feel like I've lost out on anything. Mike is right on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I uh, would love to see what you're doing, Big Al. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just had to put that in there. I, by the way, I play on a practice pad more than I play on actual drums. Just just to clarify. Yes, um, we, we, uh, we ended up at the place that if you could play on a snare drum every time you had sticks, that would be preferable. <laughs> You can't. But thanks, Big Al. I'm glad you got my back. (laughs) Son of an owl. All right. Our last one is from Steve. Uh, My question, in your experience, is a number of different snare drums on the market generally proportionate to a range of meaningful differences in their sounds and other qualities, such as price range and aesthetic quality? How often are you genuinely surprised by a snare drum? What a great question. How about you go first? Um, okay, the first question, is it proportionally meaningful difference? No, a snare drum is a noise box. It's just either a shallow or a deep noise box. <laughs> okay, if someone doesn't make you that shirt, a <laughs> snare drum is a noise box. Michael Dawson. That you, is amazing. I think you'd be hard-pressed if I if I took 20 drums made from the same material, the same shell size, same material from different manufacturers, blindfolded you in my studio, I tune them the way I tune them. You'd be hard pressed to hear a difference in any of those. Okay, drums. Let, then let me ask you this. I think that the amount of snare drums is because a company makes a good snare drum. Let's say it's Sonar, makes a good snare drum, and then everyone else says, well, we got to have our version of that so that our customers can buy that. If we just took the lineup of Tama snare drums, but no other companies, only Tama, now is there an overabundance? Could Tama or, or Pearl or Yamaha, could they thin their line? Or do you think it's just that everybody has to have the same thing and then it gets even worse when you mix in signature products? Yeah, because you're talking about different series, which means you're talking about brass, solid brass hardware versus cast hard, die cast hardware. And I mean, all that stuff do, does add up. But yeah. And the shell itself, is it is it handmade? Is it solid? Is it plywood? So meaningful differences it depends on what you're listening for. Ultimately, yeah. it's going to be heard from a distance and it's going to sound like a noise box. <laughs> yeah. That said, I have a lot of snare drums. So I'm, I think it's meaningful in the fact that I'm excited by them and I can get something out of each one that's a little bit different that makes me play a little bit differently or fits yeah. the music a little bit differently. But as far as meaningful in the, in the grand scheme of things, no, I don't think so. I think the thing that gets me the most excited about a drum nowadays is how it feels. Yeah, some some totally. drums just feel more enjoyable to play. And, and if, if a drum's not enjoyable to play, I really don't care how good it sounds. That's why I uh, chose the Alaskan Cedar when I went to the Sugar Percussion Workshop. He had, really? He had all tuned identical, the Cedar, the Cherry, and the Mahogany. And it was just night and day, the, the feel. The Cherry felt hard. The mahogany felt kind of normal, but the cedar just felt really soft and, and comfortable. 
but the really? sound, but they were pitched exactly the same. The tension, and it just, it just had a bigger, fatter sound as a result. All of us were like, that's the one. It's just so different than everything else. Hmm. Wow. Uh, quick question on sugar. I saw today that Jefferson put up a post about a plywood snare. Yes, yes. But it looks gorgeous. Is it a joke or is it real? No, it's real. And it's, okay. it's reverse plywood so it's not plywood yeah. going from out to in it's going from top of the bearing edge top to, to bottom, bottom. <laughs> so when he says it's 100 plies it's not 100 plies thick it's 100 plies from top to bottom yeah it's but like a stripe dude that thing looks gorgeous it's I'm, i think awesome. i'm gonna order it yeah did you get a chance to hear it yes uh, i won't okay. tell you where but i've played it in a professional situation before and also okay. he had them at you know the prototypes at the at the workshop and was it a good sounding drum it is a it's kind of a punchy mid-rangey kind of sound Okay. Different than cool. than the rest of their their catalog, which I think is a good thing to have. It's it's a more yeah. compressed sounding drum. Just like we said earlier, no, there are not enough snare drums, <laughs> and the industry should keep making them. All right, let's get to one more question. Oh, really? I was done. <laughs> All right. Let's see if we can get through this one. This is from Todd. Can you list off the top, say, three or four elements of a drum that have the most influence on the sound of that drum? Uh, for instance, wood type, depth, etc. So most um, influential to the least influential. Okay. Um, maybe bearing edge? That'd be your most influential? Well, if it's wrong, yeah. I mean, he doesn't say size. Yeah, if, if, if we're saying if everything is correct. If, well, let's say, are we, are we talking about a 14-inch drum? Or are we talking about any drum that's ever been made in the history of drums? What's the diameter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now it's turning into something. Yeah, well, of course. uh, The diameter, the 8 sounds a lot different than the 17. (laughs) And yes, they've made 17-inch drums before. So let's say it's a a snare drum. Okay. So bearing edge. Well, no, I would say, yeah, I mean, I would say bearing edge if it's wrong. Um, But if we're dealing with like a drum that's that's proper and it's a brand new drum, and it's the same size, then yeah, the I would say definitely the wood type. Um, but man, God, in the end, I would say head and tuning. I was going to say drum heads more than yeah. anything, because uh, you could do a Pepsi challenge on me with birch, basswood, and maple, and I would be like, if they were all tuned identical, I would. I I still am not at a point where I can go maple. But wait, American. <laughs> Wisconsin. <laughs> this is a DW. Yeah, like, but I can't that, do that. Have that drum with a clear diplomat versus. I a can tell you. I Emperor can tell you on the X. first hit as I punch through it. Like, uh, that was a clear diplomat. Uh, snare side, I think. Oh man, drum so, yeah, head. So, drum head number one. Shell type number two. Number three would be barren edges. Can you? Can you? I can feel a difference, but I haven't done any A-B testing. Could you feel a difference if it was a thick or a thin shell? If it was one of those old OCDP 25-ply yeah. or 50-ply. Yeah, I think, yeah, thickness and maybe the bearing edge yeah. sharpness. Like, yep, I can tell that pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, especially between a roundover and a double 45, because I have yeah. both of those here made by Gretsch, in, and I can totally tell the feel and the sound. All right, everybody, keep sending in your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We will answer them as fast as we can. Now it is time for everybody's favorite game. What's your pick of the week, Mr. Dawson? <laughs> What's the thing in your office that you haven't thought about in a long time? <laughs> There's symbols behind you. Are they any good? <laughs> 
No, and I, I will tell you off camera why, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, there we go. There's the honesty bomb that I want. Oh, Nolan's spine. Um, yeah. Pick of the week. I, I'm just going to stick with Glenn Kochi and say, if you haven't checked it out, check out the movie I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. It's the documentary of oh. the band literally, I think, weeks after Glenn joined. So the band was in, like, there was all kinds of tension and drama. So I'm Trying to Break Your Heart documentary was, again, one of the things that just made me fall in love with the band and especially Glenn Schroeming. It's a great documentary, awesome. too. Really, really good. Well, my pick of the week goes back to the bass drum that I just purchased online. And what I wanted to let you guys know is a lot of things that make vintage drums so absurdly expensive is how original they are. And when things aren't original, the drum sounds exactly the same, but the price goes way down. The bass drum that I ordered probably would have been, or that I that I bought from Nelson Drum Company, probably would have been closer to eight or nine hundred dollars, but it was only three hundred dollars because one of the bass drums hoops wasn't original, mm-hmm. and it didn't have the original heads, the calfskin heads, and it's like I don't want any of that stuff. I don't care. Yep. I just want the shell, and the shell's in great shape, and the finish is in great shape, and I got the bass drum. A twelve, a nineteen forties twelve by twenty two for like three hundred bucks, mm. and I'm so excited about it because all I need it to do is sound good. Yep, and it will. And so I just want to let you guys know whether it's Wooden Weather Drum Company or Revival Drum Shop or you know where I go for most of my stuff is Nelson Drum Company, just because Bryson cares so much about everyone that's getting their products. Uh, just look at vintage drums and be excited. Like if you're going to play the dang thing and you're not buying it to collect it, you can save a ton of money by the fact that like a, hey, uh, none of the tension rods are original with this 20 snare drum. You don't want the original tension rods. You get tetanus. <laughs> there's a reason why there's no originals left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm exactly. all about getting the misfit drums because totally. that you're going to get so much more use out of it. Yeah, I'm not a collector's guy. That stuff drives yeah. me nuts. I'm like, I don't. There you go. I don't even keep the. They, everyone says keep all the original parts. I'm like, why? Why would I keep this drumhead yeah. from 1930? <laughs> like, so I, I just, uh, I just threw out a couple sets of like 1920s snare wires and yeah, the wires, some, and yeah, some the- rusty stuff. I was like, you know what? I'm. <laughs> I didn't buy this so I could sell it one day. If anything, I'm probably gonna, you know, just get annoyed as an old man with a bunch of crap in his garage and be like. Hey, Billy, do you play drums? <laughs> this, this is from the 20s. <laughs> this will probably offend a lot of people, but that's that's my feeling about people who buy toys and keep them in the packages. It's oh, like, why do you got G.I. Oh. Joes that are still in packaging? What is Man. wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It, either do it because you can make money off it and you know that and you, it's, that's fine if it's your business, but or just, you know, hey, just admit it. You want to play with G.I. Joes. I, <laughs> I got issues. Man. Yeah, I got <laughs> issues too, man. I flew to Waco, Texas, to learn more about interior design from fi- the Fixer Upper crew. Like, I got issues. You want to play with GI Joes? Play with GI Joes. Just, oh, just get better are, at the drums and so, count out loud. So far off the off the reservation hey, with this one. Count out loud. Let's just make those shirts. And what was your other one? Snare drum is a noise box. It's, yeah, just a noise box, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you get a chance, wherever you're listening to us, please give us a rating and a review. That helps other drummers find this podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. Until next time, who do we have playing us out? We've got Martin Schmidt, who's going to send us out with a beat that um, he was exploring a 7 over 4 polyrhythm and ended up at 7-4, and this is it. He's playing a DW Tasmanian exotic kit with Blackwood shells. 
dig it. Thanks, Martin. Send oh. your beats in mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We need some, so send them in. We're out. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.